Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode of the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast that explores the origins and the development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Yes, as Peter says, this is a very special episode. Listeners with long memories might recall about a year and a half ago now, Mm, (gasps) we did an episode called The Road to the Crime Syndicate, or Before the Crime Syndicate of America, where we talked about the, the characters that had names and powers or whatever that were very similar to the characters that appeared on Earth 3. And we'd planned for a long time to do a Doom Patrol issue because obviously Doom Patrol has a character called Robot Man. Cliff Steele's Robot Man. No relation to me obviously. He spells his name differently for a start. There was obviously a Golden Age Robot Man so there's that legacy aspect there right enough that would justify us doing a Doom Patrol story. And we have decided to do issue 121 of the Doom Patrol. That'll be next week's episode. It's the final regular Silver Age issue. And there's a reason why we've decided to do that story which we'll tell you about next week. But this week we're looking at some precedents to the Doom Patrol. We're doing a story with the original Golden Age Robot Man, and we're going to do a few other stories that feature elements and powers, shall we say, or similarities. Yes, uh-huh. Different precursors to the members of the Doom Patrol. To the yes. actual Doom Patrol, yeah. Mm. And, you know, so maybe some surprises for your listeners. We'll see. As I say, there was a Golden Age Robot Man. There was indeed. And we're going to do one of his adventures. So the Golden Age Robot Man... I first encountered him, like the Shining Knight, who we met recently, in the pages of All-Star Squadron. When did you first meet him, Peter? Yes, that's exactly where I found him, yes. I like the fact that he was quite a big player in many issues of All-Star Squadron. I think I lost count of how many times his legs got melted and fused and he had to build new ones. But that's getting Always welding, always welding, soldering. Screwing in bolts and rivets and stuff. But we'll get to to All-Star Squadron, obviously, way, way in the future. Mm. The Golden Age Robot Man first appeared in issue 7 of Star Spangled Comics. Mm -hmm. Published in February, dated April of 1942. And he ran all the way up to issue 82 of Star Spangled Comics. Mm -hmm. Before he flipped over to the pages of Detective Comics in issue 138. He was there all the way up to issue 202, making his first appearance in 1948 and then his final appearance in 1953. And the story we're doing today is from Detective Issue 153, which was published on the 21st of September 1949. Mm -hmm. By which point quite a lot of his contemporary DC Golden Age superheroes had started to give up the ghost. Yes, certainly one of the most long-lived ones. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, making it all the way up to 1953, that's, as you would put it, that's virtually atomic age. Yes, uh uh-huh. So... Detective Comics 153. Pete, see, do you want to tell everyone about the cover, even though it's not the story we're doing? Yes, the cover features Batman flying, flying through the sky. His cape (laughs) is more like a glider. And it says, as he's caught in two spotlights, Bruce Wayne has his most amazing adventure when he becomes the Flying Batman. The Flying Batman. And also there's a new Pow Wow Smith story, apparently. Wow. According to the the banner at the top. Is that the first mention of Pow Wow Smith in the podcast? It certainly is. Is it? I couldn't remember. I wasn't sure if we'd mentioned him at any point when we talked about Johnny Thunder, but not to worry. But there's some nasty bad guys who are firing big machine guns. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's like, looks. I hope he's also the bulletproof Batman, because (laughs) that looks horrendous. Yeah. But of course, we're not doing the Batman story, we're doing the Robot Man story. So before we go into the story, what's the, the background on Robot Man? What's the setup? Robot Man was a scientist originally called Robert Crane, and he was developing a mechanical human body made of metal, along with his lab assistant Chuck Grayson. But gangsters were threatening him and they wanted to steal this mechanical body. But he refused, and he was shot. Oh, no. So his assistant Chuck, in order to save his life, transplanted his brain into... The robot body. Yes. Becoming a literal robot man. Fantastic. Now, obviously, Robert Crane 
had died as far as the law goes. So he'd created a new human disguised Paul Dennis. That's right. And had a Mission Impossible style mask that he wore. And yes, he tracked down the real killers and brought them to justice and then worked as a hero ever since. Yep. So there we are. And it's probably worth saying, I think that, um, Chuck Grayson probably pops up in All Star Squadron as well. He does, it? yes. Because uh-huh. it's that, it's the most torturous. <laughs> he's laughing at me because we've talked about this before. Yeah. It's the most torturous of Roy Thomas's comic book retcons. In fact, it's not the most torturous, it's the second most torturous. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that one as well. Yeah. So, yes, that's the set off for Robot Man. I quite like him, I can't lie. It's not a real favourite as far as the All-Star Squadron, but it's a pretty cool setup. It's yeah, he's one of the It's a fun idea. Yeah. And obviously, he must have been popular because his strip ran for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. So, we're doing this one for a reason. We don't want to just pick any Robot Man story nope. to do. There is a particular reason why we're doing this one. It kind of ties into our legacy aspect. Mm-hmm. We have an opening splash panel where there's something going on, which we'll tell you about in a second. There's a Robot Man logo at the top and a caption box that says, Can you imagine a match for Robot Man? Another human brain in another metal body, but a body even bigger, more powerful than the famous man of metal. What a friend, thinks Robot Man, that this metal man will be. And then he learns that the new robot human spells danger, a danger greater than any he has faced before, a danger he never expected from... The the second second Robot Robot Man. Yes. And now that we've told you the title, we can tell you that the opening splash panel shows what appears to be Robot Man punching another Robot Man. There's an insect panel, bottom right hand of this opening page, and a caption in it says, Paul Dennis, alias Robot Man, has a human brain in his metal body. And human feelings too. Yep, and we see Paul in his very plush apartment. There's a nice lamp on a table behind him. Telephone on the table starts to ring as Paul is saying, There's no one like me in the world. That's why no one can really understand me or help cheer me up when I'm blue. First panel of page two, Paul's hand moves to answer the phone. See the nice jaggedy ringing indication? And a big hairy hand reaches for the phone. <laughs> Paul says, This must be one of my human friends phoning me. But he'd stop being a friend if he realised that under my plastic skin, I have a robot's body. Now, that sets it all up, doesn't it? It does indeed, yes. Uh-huh. Everything you need to know in that yep. one panel. A bit of lo- self-loathing and self-pity there, Paul Dennis. Caption then for panel two of page two says, Little does Paul Dennis realise what a strange significance this telephone call will have for his lonely life. So Paul takes a seat in a big comfy-looking green chair. You can see that Paul's wearing a blue check jacket. Very Barry Allen. The voice down the line is saying, Paul, you've got to come over at once. This is Jim Wilson. I'm at Dr. Zanger's house. He's conducting a wonderful experiment. It must be wonderful if it's got you so excited, Jim. I'll be right over. And so, presently... See Jim meeting Paul as Paul gets out of his fancy red sports car. Jim wears a green suit. He's got glasses, brown hair, and he says... Dr. Zanger doesn't want the news spread around, but I told him how interested you were in science. And he said it'd be all right. Easy, Jim. What's this all about? In the next panel, they've moved inside. Jim gestures towards a large, clear covering tube, which is a figure inside. And Jim gestures and says, This! And Paul exclaims, A robot! And sure enough, we can see the back of a mechanical-looking armoured figure. Dr. Zanger joins the conversation in the next panel. He's an older man with a very Edwardian-looking moustache and beard going on. Facially, he looks very much like the chief from the Doom Patrol. He does, which is an amazing coincidence. (laughs) It's very interesting. Dr. Zanger is in the process of saying, Not a robot, merely a robot's body, but without a brain to direct it. I've been looking for a suitable brain I can transfer into it, and tonight 
I think I've found it, Paul Dennis replies. And you think it will actually work? Yes. Robot Man is also supposed to have a human brain in his metal body. How does he know that? <laughs> but since the scientist who created Robot Man died, no one has been able to match his feet. Until tonight. It'll be a great thing if you do, replies Paul. And then Paul thinks to himself, especially for me. At least I'll have a companion like myself. I'll no longer be the only one of my kind. Caption for the first panel of page three, then. Nerves tighten tensely as the great physician works, and the minutes pass. Yes. Working under a, a simple angle poised lamp <laughs> by the looks of things, <laughs> and not wearing any kind of surgical equipment or protective clothing whatsoever, we can see that Jim and Paul and Dr. Zanger are standing around an operating table. Dr. Zanger has a metal bowl in front of him. As he looks into this bowl, is that a scalpel in his hand? Looks like it mm -hmm. anyway. And he's saying, The brain came from the body of a man just killed in a plane crash. Just what I wanted. Now we're debating this because Paul seems to be saying, My future friend, lying on a table. I can hardly believe it. But it's not the sort of thing he'd be saying out loud because his status as Paul Dennis, a.k.a. Robot Man, isn't well known. It's no. not like his identity is public. So we're thinking that he must be supposed to be thinking that. It's not yeah. too clear. Anyway, page 3, panel 2's caption says, And then... Suddenly, the great metal body sits up. Yes, I'm imagining music from the day the Earth stood still <laughs> at this point here. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yes, the robot figure sits up. Dr. Zanger says, I've done it! The greatest scientific miracle since Robot Man! And Paul Dennis thinks, he's created someone like me. And then, the creature speaks. Where? Where am I? Continues in the next panel. I feel strange, my... My hands look different. Yes, he's got his hands up to his face. Dr. Zanger waves a finger and says, But don't be afraid. You're all right. You have a robot's body now. Tremendous strength. A steel body. Great strength? <laughs> I'll have an easy time with the police now. Yeah, the robot figure is stunning. It's almost like he's flexing his new body. Dr. Zanger looks concerned and says, With the police? What are you talking about? In the next panel, this new robot figure pushes Paul Dennis out the way and says, Ha! I was a criminal. They were going to send me to the chair, but I escaped and took that plane. Now I don't have to run anymore. Everybody else will run from me. And at this, the robotic figure punches Paul Dennis, saying, Out of my way! In the next panel, he bursts through the wall and the side of the building, bricks flying as he says, I'll commit all the crimes in the world. Nobody will be able to stop me. Paul Dennis, down on the ground, Dr. Zanger down on the ground behind him. Paul's thinking, if I could appear as Robot Man, I'd tackle him now. But I'd be revealing my identity as Paul Dennis, and I can't do that. Yeah, but you were just talking out loud the way <laughs> this has been lettered earlier on about having... Oh, anyway, let's not get annoyed. The first panel then, page four, has a caption that says, When he is finally alone, however, Robot Man strips off his plastic disguise. Now, we haven't had this too often in the podcast, a hero ducking into an alleyway and getting changed into his no, heroic mm -hmm. secret identity. I might put that panel on the socials. Yeah. We'll see. So yes, as he's getting changed, Paul Dennis, a.k.a. Robot Man, is saying, Now to stop him. He isn't used to being a robot yet. He doesn't know everything his body can do. I shouldn't have too much trouble with him. The trail of the robot criminal is easy to follow, and soon... Panel 2 shows Robot Man coming across a chap in a car, and the car looks as though it's been mounted up on a fence post or something. It's been lifted up and then dumped. The man in the car is saying, Help! The robot's coming back to finish me off! Yeah, because he's seen Robot Man, our Robot Man, coming towards him. But then Robot Man says, I'm not the same one, friend. I'm Robot Man. I'll get you down from there. Which way did he go? Toward the police station. He said he was going to pay back those cops. In the next panel, Robot Man 
rounds the corner at the police station and sees the evil other robot man bearing two policemen under his arm. And he's saying, You used to give me the third degree, but I'm giving it back to you now. Not if I can help it, cries our robot man. In the next panel of page four, the evil robot man is hurling the police officers straight at the goody, our robot man. As he does this, the bad guy says, Robot man, I used to be scared of your name, but no more. Now I'm tougher than you are. And in the process of catching the, the hapless police officers, Robot Man thinks, This was the friend I thought I'd have. My most dangerous enemy. Final panel, page four. Robot Man lunges forward at the evil interloper, saying, I'll see how tough you are. And as the bad Robot Man ends up on his back, he says, That didn't hurt me. Dr. Zanger built me even stronger than you. We arrive at the top of page five now. It's really kicking off. The caption of the first panel says, Tearing up a fire hydrant by the roots, the frenzied robot criminal smashes his smaller opponent to the ground. Yes, a great panel. We can see the water gushing out from the pavement in the background. As the villain lifts the fire hydrant to strike our robot man, he says, <laughs> You're a weakling, robot man. Not quite. Even if I'm not as strong as you are. Caption for the next panel. As the robot crook tries to finish off the man of metal. Yep. The very handsome, it must be said, in this panel. <laughs> Actual Robot Man punches him. Now looks so like the fire hydrant is shattered. Robot Man says, That evens us up. Now to put a little distance between us. And he thinks, If I run and he thinks I'm afraid, I may be able to lure him into a trap. Caption for the next panel. As Robot Man heads over a nearby bridge. There's some handy see what you see dialogue here. The evil robot says, Huh? I'm falling through. My weight's too much for this bridge. Yep, you see that he's fallen through the wooden slats and our robot man has fallen through too. Our robot man's saying, I figured it would be, and though I'm falling too, I'll have the advantage in the water. Yep, we can see the, the river flowing underneath the next panel. They're both in the water and our robot man is swimming away, saying, It takes time for a heavy metal man to learn to swim. He's too new to know how. And the other evil robotic figure plodding along in the riverbed is thinking, I can't swim. But I have a surprise for Robot Man. And in the next panel, he's emerging from the water behind our Robot Man, and he's saying, I have a built-in oxygen tank so that I can breathe in emergencies. Dr. Zanger did a good job on me. Too good. I'm beginning to wonder if you're too tough for me. Final panel of page five. Robot Man has got out of the water and he's legging it along a pier. It's a great shot of his feet in motion. As he runs, he's saying, After that remark, he'll be more anxious than ever to finish me. But if I can delay him for a few seconds, I'll get him into a trap from which he can't escape. The caption then for the first panel, page six, says, As the robot criminal eagerly pursues his intended victim. We see another moody shot of the, the evil robot walking under an elevated structure. It's a railway bridge. The evil robot says, Robot man, where are you? Stand and fight. And from above, a voice comes. You come up here on the elevated and I'll fight. So yep, it's the overhead rail track. Next panel shows Goody Robot Man looking down on the other figure who's climbing up the truss. Goody Robot Man says, I climbed up by that steel pillar, but I'm afraid you don't know how to climb yet. That's what you think. I'm coming right after you. And it's great this panel because there's a whole bunch of passers-by in public just standing watching, which is obviously a really sensible thing to do if two robots are fighting in front mm. of you. These days they'd have their phones out filming yes, it all. they yes. would be. <laughs> Absolutely. The next panel, Robot Man's very smiley in this panel as he's standing as the, the villain climbs over the side of the the bridge to join him and Robot Man points and says, Don't come any closer. This third rail carries thousands of volts. It means death. Don't try to kid me, Robot Man. Electricity is just as deadly to your metal body and you're right on the third rail. There can't be any current in it. 
Caption name for the next panel. But as the two powerful metal bodies close in deadly combat... The heroic robot man strikes a massive punch, sending the evil one flying backwards, and there's a massive red discharge of energy. As he punches him out, the good robot man says, You've met your punishment. The electrocution to which you were condemned in the first place. Gosh, that's dark. Mm. So, we arrive at panel five of page six. Robot man standing conversing with a, a handy policeman. Perhaps he's a, a member of the railway authority. But anyway, this capped figure is saying, How come the electricity killed him, robot man, and didn't hurt you? See, robot man has opened a little cavity in his chest and he's holding what looks like a some kind of aerosol or spray bottle or something. And he replies, saying, Simple. I sprayed myself with this quick-drying transparent plastic. It's a perfect insulator from electricity. And a slow dissolve. The caption for the final panel. Later, in the laboratory of Dr. Zanger once again. Yep, it's a close-up of Dr. Zanger looking very regretful. Paul Dennis standing behind him. Dr. Zanger saying, I'll never perform this experiment again. There's fated to be only one human brain in a metal body. Robot man. Do you agree, Mr. Dennis? And a very thoughtful Paul Dennis says, Yes, I suppose so. The end. Well, there we are. Well, that was fun and exciting and short. And dark. Yes, yes. very. But the first thing we have to say straight away is, mm-hmm. where did they get the body from? And did they not do any checks beforehand as to who the guy was and background checks on the guy that ended up in the plane crash? It's just, you know, a body of a man killed in a plane crash. It's fine. Yeah, you know, no, it's not. You'd think, like, right, yeah, I need a random brain from a, from a person that might have died. I'm just going to sit and, yeah, sure. We've just had this corpse come in in a plane crash. Do you want that? Yeah, sure. Who was he? Oh, I don't know. That's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I think it's even darker than that. I think Dr. Zanger was just driving home one night, saw a plane crash, went, ah, yeah. I might use this to my advantage. Spoke to, um, spoke to the mid-20th century version of Burke and Hare and see what they, it's very much saw what they had. Yeah, huh? I found that very, very distracting. I almost wanted to comment <laughs> on it as we were doing the story. But I thought I'd wait so we'd have something to talk about at the end. You know, The operation is one panel and then the robot, yeah. evil robot man's bolt upright. I was a criminal. They were going to send me to the chair and I escaped to that place. It's like, you know... He adapts to that body instantly He as does, well. yeah. yeah. The, what, with the police, what are you... T- I mean, that just sh- shows that Zanger did nothing to check where he was getting mm-hmm. his merchandise from. Did the body literally fall off the back of a lorry? <laughs> um, that was the only thing. I mean, it's, it's only a six-page story. I'm yeah. probably being too too harsh on it. But, you know, I sort of thought that really struck me. I thought you didn't even, as I say, do any background. You didn't find out if he was a decent, upstanding member of society or if he was indeed maybe a scientist or something mm-hmm. himself or what he was going to contribute. You know, it's, I think Dr. Zanger was incredibly reckless. Perhaps he hired Igor from Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein to um, acquire it. Marty Feldman making his first appearance in the in this podcast. Indeed. Far too reckless, Dr. Zanger. You brought every you brought that on <laughs> everyone. You could have done something to prevent that. I'm very annoyed at you. I'm surprised our robot man wasn't looking at this new body thinking Hmm, this is stronger, faster, more That's agile. true. Has an oxygen tank. I, c- I could do with an upgrade. That's very true. And there's nothing to say, you know, I mean, the electricity took him out and all that. I mean, mm-hmm. did robot man maybe carry him off and try and adapt some of the, the, oh God, spare, yes. some of the spare parts? <laughs> you can have the brain. I'll, I'll keep the yeah, rest. We'll just put a, a sort of splat sound effect as he drops the brain into a bin. Did the criminal of a family? What were the police? Criminal sort of families and gold age stories. That's it. Were the police pursuing him? No, they obviously they thought he died in this plane. He was going to send him the chair, but I escaped and took that plane. So I mean, presumably hmm. there must be some kind of investigation of the plane crash going on yeah. and what happened to the criminal that escaped. And he doesn't even get named. True. That's quite dark. True. Yeah. You know, it's just some anonymous uh-huh. man who just ended up in this horrible Frankenstein situation. Indeed. 
That was a hundred times darker than I expected it to be. Yes, and if that's the second Robot Man, that means Cliff Steele is actually Robot Man 3. Yes, <laughs> there you go, listeners. Check that out. Go away and update your, your DC your fandom who. wiki entries. <laughs> Think of that, what you will. There we go, it's the, the Earth 2 mm. podcast, shattering all preconceptions that's and myths before that's us. What we do. Before we move on to the next story that we're going to talk about, we should quickly tell you about a character called Auto Man, mm-hmm. who appeared... Not in the short-lived live-action American TV series. Which was a lot of fun. Desi Arnaz Jr. He appeared in three issues of DC's Tales of the Unexpected in the the mid-60s. Issue 91, which was published on 12th of August, 65. Issue 94, published on the 15th of February, 66. And then issue 97 on the 11th of August, 1966. And we only mention him because he looks very much like the Cliff Steele. Yes, he does. Uh He has that sort of coppery bronze colour scheme. Mm-hmm. Turns up for three issues, you know, becomes a sort of robot for hire, gets the cover in one of his appearances, I think yep. in his third appearance. I'll put all three of them in the socials mm-hmm. so you can see him. And doesn't quite disappear never to be heard of again because he popped up somewhere else eventually, didn't he? Yes, in 2004, yeah. he came back very briefly in a miniseries called Engine Head, which is basically about artificial intelligences and robots who all merge to create this perfect artificial being and it all goes hideously wrong. Joe Kelly, Ted McKeever did it. Right. It's really interesting. It's never been collected as far as I'm aware. But mm-hmm. uh, if you can find the, the single issues, track it down. It's quite grimy. It's probably the word I would use for it. It's, right. But it's hardly in it. Right. The engine Head itself is just a, it's a weird do, title. But fun. Do any other DC Automaton characters feature in that series? Yes. Uh-huh. You, established ones? Yeah, you've got quite a few of them. Even uh, Tim from the Metal Men turns up. You right. Know, you've, got, you've got a few of them. So yeah. Interesting. Okay. So that's Engine Head listeners. Check that out there if you feel inclined so auto man yeah not quite identical to the cliff steel robot man different sort of face but you know mm-hmm. when i first saw him i was like hang on a minute yeah it's remarkable it's a shame that they never actually met that maybe when we do our dc comic we can write a story for robot man and auto man come together and swap legs and swap arms or something yeah or take the second robot man's body for parts yeah and, and rita's appalled or something and before we before we move on we should very quickly mention in the same breath as all these robot men a couple of stories from My Greatest Adventure, which mm-hmm. of course is where the Doom Patrol made their debut. Issue 66 has a very interesting story about a scientist who discovers a very exciting and difficult to explore subterranean cavern. And he tells one of his scientist friends about it. And his scientist friend tells him about this new robot that he's built that he can transfer his mind into Gosh. so that he can go and explore the cavern without any risk. And then, of course... The scientist Powell tries to trick him into staying in the, the robot body and all that. And it's interesting because it has the line, the first human robot in history, ah. which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. It could work as a sort of superhero origin, I suppose, you know, mm-hmm. betrayed by your pal and all that. Thankfully, there's a happy ending. And after a courtroom battle, of all things, good, good. Professor Stewart, for he is the hero, manages to get back to his own body. And there's a story in My Greatest Adventure, issue 77, which features a doctor having to work on the robot duplicate of a king. Mm-hmm. which is only worth mentioning because it's so close to the My Greatest Adventure story where the Doom Patrol were introduced. So yes. robots were definitely on their mind, I think. Excellent. Fascinating. Yeah. So that's a wee story there of the, the Golden Age Robot Man, busting a few myths because we find out that there was another one before Cliff Steele. And the next Doom Patrol president we're going to talk about is... Our second preemptive story that we're doing in this episode is from issue 15 of Challengers of the Unknown. Yay! Challengers, we did a Challengers issue last year because it had lots of interdimensional nonsense and it's turned out to be one of our most popular episodes. Indeed, yes. So if, if you're listening and you're a Challengers of the Unknown fan, why don't you start your own Challengers of the Unknown podcast? There's definitely a demand for it, I'm mm-hmm. sure. 
So issue 15, there are two stories in that issue, and we are doing the story that's flagged up on the cover. Do you want to tell everyone about the cover of Challengers issue 15? I would love to. We've got a beautiful sky blue background, yellow Challengers of the Unknown logo at the top. And there is a giant, hideous, pinky purple beast, horned beast, lizard creature. Mm. And it is massive. It's about to stomp on the Challengers. Oh no! But fortunately... June, who's the honorary <laughs> challenger, she has become a giant and is wrestling this hideous beast by the horn. She's literally taking the beast by the horns. Yes. Ace is shouting from below, June has become a giant. She saved us in the nick of time. Yeah, there's a touch of the She-Hulks to June's outfit, you know, the way that it's torn, mm -hmm. but not in any way as to, to render her indecent. Indeed, yes. Which is marvellous. Very Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, mm. which is pretty much what this is a riff of. Yeah. And the reason we're doing this issue of Challengers, obviously, with the Lady Giant, is because the way June is afflicted is kind of similar to Elastigirl from the Doom Patrol, who regularly appears as a, as a giant woman. Yes, Elastigirl. Rita Farr is her real name. She was an actress, yeah, and she was exposed to unusual volcanic gases while shooting a film in darkest Africa. And when she recovered, she discovered she could expand or shrink her body at will from hundreds of feet tall to microscopically small. When she gained greater control of her powers, she became able to return to normal size or enlarge one limb at a time. Yep. Which is Excellent. very cool. And interestingly, that's a, a character trait that uh, Ms. Marvel, mm. Kamala Khan, has in the Marvel Comics universe. And of course, Vita's superhero name of Elastigirl is very similar to the mum from The Incredibles. Indeed, yes. Uh, the successful Disney Pixar animated movie, the sequel of which I enjoyed a hundred times more than the first one. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen the sequel. It's mm. very good. Yeah, okay. it's very good. I uh, can't remember specifics of why I enjoyed it more, but I just did. So yes, we're doing the Lady Giant and the Beast from issue 15 of the Challengers, published on the 14th of June, 1960. Our opening splash. It's a full page image of of Giant June looming over the Challengers. Challengers logos there, obviously, and we have a text caption box that says, "What thing was spawned in the cavern on Challenger Mountain?" What was it that left huge tracks and smashed the great stone door? These were questions to be answered by four men who defy fearsome riddles. The challengers of the unknown when they become ensnared in the strange adventure of the Lady, the Lady Giant, Giant and the, the Beast. beast. Oh, the Beast, of course, being a founding member of the X-Men. Of course. And we'll talk a little bit more about the X-Men a little later on. <laughs> so this yes. opening splash panel. June is looming over the lads. Ace is saying, It's June. She's become a giant and doesn't recognise us. And Rocky's saying, Scram, pals. If she ever gets those dainty hands of hers on us, it's Curran's. Right, into the story proper then. First panel, page two, has a caption that says, June Robbins, honorary member of the Challengers of the Unknown, often uses the laboratory in their cave headquarters at Challenger Mountain. See June. Hard at work. She's got a notepad open beside her. She's making notes with her pens and test tubes in a rack. And she's looking down the funnels of a microscope. And she's saying, With the fellows away, I can work on these newly discovered microbes, which were brought back from a balloon that went up 75 miles. See her pouring chemical from one tube into another, steam coming off it. I want to check their reaction on lower atmosphere elements. Suddenly, a muffled explosion. Yes, there's a whoomph as the test tube in front of June explodes. Lots of smoke. June's hair gets flung back. Days, she struggles to reach a two-way radio. Yeah, we see her crawling along the, the floor. Clothes are torn as well. Dear. Oh, she's okay. She reaches up for the radio microphone and she's saying, Something's happened to me. Seems to be passing out. Must contact challengers. 
Swift moments later, a coded signal reaches a jet. Yep, we see the lads flying along in the plane. Prof's got the headset on, and he says, It's June calling from the cave. Something's gone wrong. She wants us there pronto. Hey, her voice just faded out. Ace replies, Sit tight, pals. I'll set a speed record getting us there. Not long after... We see the Challenger's aeroplane arriving back at Challenger's Mountain. Rocket says, Fellas, look, the door's broken. And Prof says... That means we can't go in on the runway. Ace will have to land outside. Blimey, Professor. So, top of page three, caption of the first panel. After setting down, the famed quartet races into the cave to find... Things do not look good. Guys stand at the top of the stairs. We can see that tables have been tipped over. Cabinets have been shattered. Equipment's all piled up and broken. The mirror on the wall is slightly askew, which I would find terribly upsetting. Top of the stairs, Rocky says, What a mess! Oh, brother, what hit this place? A tornado? Then Prof says, Where's June? Moving into the cavern in the next panel, we see that Red is in front of a broken display case. And Red notices something on the ground and says, Hey, here are giant footprints and they're human. And we can see what first it looked could just be a splash, but no, it's definitely a giant footprint on the ground. Whatever made them is outside. Maybe with June. Let's go. Yeah, and that helpful arrow takes us to our next panel, which is captioned. Apprehensively, they follow the strange trail. There's an interesting framed panel here because we're looking through between <laughs> a pair of legs. We're just standing on the other side of some rocks as we see the challengers walking along beside a river. And at the front is Rocky who says, The footprints go on up ahead of ways and then turn. Ace says, Be careful. Whatever made the prints could be nearby. And then we pull back in the final panel of page three to see June in all her 50-foot glory standing over them. Rocky points and says, It is nearby. Ace, Prof, Red, look. And Red exclaims, Great guns! Top of page four now, and June's hand fills the panel as she reaches down towards the challengers. Red cries, Scatter! And then in panel two, June has grabbed Ace and Rocky. Ace is saying, Good heavens, it's June. June, what happened? Don't you know us? We're in trouble, pal. She doesn't know us from Adam. In the next panel, June has started walking, and Rocky cries from above, Prof! Red, look out! And we see Red and Haley at the front of the panel starting to move off. Red says, she's trying to step on us. She'd squash like a couple of mushrooms. And then in the next panel, we see that June has her hand up to her head. She doesn't look too happy, looking very pained. Rocky says, June, listen, gotta recognise us. It's Ace and me, Rocky. She wasn't trying to step on them. She seems dazed as if she's going to fall. Suddenly, she reels and starts to collapse. Yep, we see June looking very wobbly, starting to fall over. She releases the guys who fall from her hand. Ace says, She is falling, Rocky. Jump! Yeah, if she crashes with us, it's curtains. And at the top of page five, with a giant... Slash! Two challengers dive into the nearby river. Rocky thinks, Made it. So, slow dissolve. Caption for the next panel. Shortly after... Yep, June's down on the ground. Still at this giant size. The guys are ranged all around her. Ace says, She's unconscious, but not from the fall. I think she passed out before she hit the ground. And Prof says, We've got to find out what caused her tremendous growth. Nice close-up of three of the lads here, and Ace says to Prof and Red, Prof, you and Red return to the lab and examine her notes. Maybe we can find the cause for this and the cure. Rocky and I will wait here. Caption for the next panel. But a little later, as Prof and Red start the ascent to their cave, Prof points and exclaims, Wait a minute, Red. Look! Great Scott! Caption for the next panel. 
Even men like the challengers who have faced every form of mortal danger are chilled by the giant menace that comes toward them down the mountainside. Yeah, it's... Have you ever seen the, the film version of the, the Lost World by Irwin Allen? Many years ago. When, yes. like, rather than actually going to the expense of building models or using stop motion in a Ray Harryhausen style, mm -hmm. they glued horns and fins onto to real lizards. Gosh. And baby alligators and stuff. Wow. This beastie looks very much like one of those. It just looks like a real <laughs> lizard that's had some plastic horns glued onto its head. It's a giant, huge, scary red lizard, yellow chest markings, and wide eyes, and two giant yellow horns coming out the centre of the top of its head. Prof cries, Get back, Red. Way back. What on earth is it? Prof? First panel of page six now, and we see the two challengers trying to duck out of the way of the claw of the lizard as it tries to step on them. Gosh. Red says, It's coming after us, Prof. Let's make it to the next hillside. Climbing the rocks in the next panel, the prof says, We haven't time to reach Rocky and Ace, but if we can get up above the thing, we can roll boulders down on it. And sure enough, that's what they do. We see them in the next panel with a crash and a wham, rolling some boulders down on top of the poor lizard. That's a shame. Red says, But what's the use? They're bouncing off it. And indeed, they do bounce off it. And in the next panel, the lizard looks a little distracted. This causes the prof to remark, It's turning away. We must have scared it off. No, we didn't, prof. Can't you see what it's after? And we see the two challengers looking astonished, and then we reach the top of page seven and see what has distracted the lizard. It's the challenger's colleagues throwing rocks at the beast. And this makes prof say, It's after Ace and Rocky. So, as the other two are hurling stones at the lizard, Ace says, We heard the crashing sounds, pals, and came for a look-see. Brother, what a beast! caption then for the next panel says seeing their chance prof and red descend yes yeah, a great panel in the background we can see prof and red having scaled down the rocks in the foreground we see ace and rocky running towards the water the the river presumably the same river we saw earlier on ace is saying this way lads across the stream we can circle back to the plane and maybe gun that baby from the air in the next panel the challengers are all together on the other side of the water and the lizard is looking after them rocky says hey it's stopped it isn't coming after us and Ace says, Maybe it doesn't like water. It came right to the bank and stopped cold. Wait a minute, let's split up again. Two of us will wait with June till she recovers and the other two will make it to the plane. And a voice from off camera, as it were, cries, Ace, fellows, where are you? And then we see, in the final panel of page seven, giant June sitting looking down at the four challengers. And Prof says, June's awake now. Top of page eight now, and in the first panel we see that June has lifted the challenges up in her hands and she's saying, I don't know what happened. I was mixing chemicals when all of a sudden there was a mild explosion and, well, I passed out after I called you on the radio. Ace says, June, listen, we'll see what we can do about getting you back to normal later, but there's a giant beast on the loose back there. Do you know what it is? I didn't see it. I don't know what it is. And she sets the boys down in the next panel and Red says, With your hide, maybe you can spot it. I'll see, says June. She stands and she points off to the right and she's saying, There it is. I see it. It's moving away through the pass. And one of the challengers says, Great guns. There's a village over there. In the next panel, we see the four challengers. Ace is saying, Pick us up, June. Carry us. We'll have to head it off. No, I have a better idea. Why don't you take the plane? I can let the thing spot me and decoy it back. And the final panel of page eight shows June depositing the four challengers next to their aeroplane. Ace is saying, Now be careful. Don't let it catch you. It's as big as you are, you know. You'll have your sights on it by then. So, we arrive top of page nine. Gosh, this is exciting. The caption for the first panel says, But even as the challengers and June put their plan into action, the beast has already entered the village. Yeah, this is great. Panic in the streets of whatever this village is. We can see 
Everyone rushing about looking terrified. We can see the sign of the drugstore, the spire of the church. We can see the giant horned lizard walking down. It looks like it's about to collide with some power lines. The caption for panel two. Moments later, a low-flying jet streaks toward the beast, firing rockets. Yeah. Vroom, vroom sound effects as the Challenger's plane fires at the lizard from inside the plane. No use. They have as much effect in it as marshmallows. We'll have to land and try something else. Oh dear. A little arrow directs us to the next panel, and the caption says, But shortly... The plane has landed. The challengers are out of the plane. They've obviously walked up incredibly close to the lizard, sensibly, and it's lunging towards them. Rocky cries, Look out! It's attacking us! Prof says, Too late, pals. Looks like we just ran out of borrowed time. And then the caption for the next panel, Suddenly, another huge figure looms and intercepts the beast. Thank goodness. June has arrived, and she's grabbed the lizard by the horns and pulls it back. Ace says, It's June. She got here in the nick of time. Yeah, she stopped that colossal paw from crushing us. Arrive at the top of page 10. Good grief. I'm expecting dramatic music in the edit here, Peter, I must say. No. <laughs> Boo. The caption for the first panel says, And drawn by the thunderous sounds of the clash between the two titans, curious inhabitants timidly emerge. Yeah, we see the challenger standing watching the battle and some of the, the villagers emerging around. We can see a sign in the foreground saying lumber. And again, the kind of telegraph power lines in the, the foreground as well. As the challengers and the, the villagers stand watching the battle, Ace says, June's doing okay, but how long can she hold out? And then the next panel... We see the challengers running towards her. And again, we're shown the lumber sign in the background. I wonder if that'll be significant. Probably not. As the challengers move off, Ace, who's getting all the good lines this week, says, I've got an idea how we can help her. Let's get over to the firehouse on the double. And the slow dissolve and a caption says, Then... And they have borrowed a fire engine, roaring out of the, the fire department garage. This is great. Imagine being in the challengers and getting a shot of a fire engine. That's Imagine. amazing. Red is saying, Okay... Let's move the fire buggy up close, real close. So the siren is wailing as they zoom towards June and the lizard. And the final panel of page 10, we see that the lizard has flipped June forward over its head. She's obviously keeping hold of the horns. The siren wails and Prof says, Step on it, Ace. It's shaken June loose. We arrive at the top of page 11. Caption says, Then... the challengers arrive in their fire engine and Red is saying, Hoses attached to water and pressure tanks. And Ace says, here goes, and let's hope we're right, figuring it doesn't like water. Shroosh, as they unleash the deluge upon the beastie, the caption for panel two. As the water strikes it, the beast roars in anger. Yeah, there's a giant growl as, as it recoils in the, the water that's spraying on it viciously. Rocky remarks, Ace, the deal's working. It's backing away. In a caption for the final panel of page 11. Writhing and twisting in its blind attempt to escape, the beast lashes out furiously and... Gosh! There's a very dynamic panel as the beast takes a swipe at the fire truck, sending everyone flying, and Prof cries, It bolt over the truck! Jump! The caption name for the first panel on page 12. Snatching up their hosies, the challengers grimly resume their work. Yeah, we can see Red and Prof working on the, the equipment. And probably because they're the two strong guys, Ace and Rocky, grabbing the hoses and directing them at the beast. Ace is saying, Keep that water going. We've stopped it. And then he gets a close-up looking very shocked in the next panel where he says, Wait a minute. Something's happening to it. And then he continues in the next panel. It's, it's getting smaller. It's shrinking like a dollar shirt. Shrinking like a dollar shirt is the name of a menswear B-side. Is it? No. Good. Anyway, but this is, Ace is correct. We can see that the, the lizard is shrinking back down to what was presumably its normal original size. The final panel on page 12 has a caption that says, Incredibly, it continues to diminish in size as the wide-eyed challengers continue to gape. 
Yep, we see the lizard. It's still huge. It's still quite scary looking, it must be said. On the road in front of them, Ace is still holding the hose and he remarks, Great guns! It's not much bigger than a puppy. How much smaller will it get? Other challengers look on as June's voice says from off camera, So small in fact that you won't be able to see it without a microscope. Then we arrive at the top of page 13. The caption for the first panel says, At the sound of the voice, the challengers pivot and stare in surprise at... And we see June back to normal. Ace exclaims delightedly, June! And June says, Yes, back to normal. And so is the beast, which was originally a microbe. We see Prof on his knees now, down on the ground, looking at little radiant burst, and he says, Hey, the beast has vanished altogether. The water must have done it. Yes, says June. Whatever made that strange microbe and me grow to giants has just worn off. But it wasn't the water that caused it, Prof says in the next panel. Wait a minute. What in blazes happened to the lab in the first place? I somehow got the ingredients of my formula mixed up. The mixture caused the unnatural growth. One in a million shot. As for the water, I suppose water was one of the lower atmosphere elements that the microbe couldn't stand. You drove it away, saving my life. The challenge all looks slightly relieved, slightly perplexed, and Ace concludes proceedings saying, Well, we've got a lot of cleaning up to do back at our cave lab. Let's get started. The, the end. Well, well, we rattled through that. Challenges the unknown. Love them. That was great. Love them. If you pardon the pun, it was Ace. <laughs> he, Ace got loads of lines in that episode. He did. That was terrific. I love that issue. That was one of my first Silver Age Challengers issues. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. I've got, always had a soft spot for it. That's, that's the second story, isn't it? Yes. The first story is a multi-man story. Yes. Uh -huh. But yeah, it's also the cover story, so that's good. Right. That was a lot of fun. I mean, mm. it's similar to Rita in a way that woman is beset and is sort of becomes victim of circumstance. and Yeah, and heals you know, fumes and yeah. then becomes a giant. Yeah. And I like the idea of the, you know, the microbe. Uh -huh. You know, if it was just grown to that size, the microbe was a lizard. Microbes are lizards. Is that what they're saying? They are. That's crazy. In 1960, um, they were. I know. I don't suppose there's a letters page or anything, is there? No. Definitely. Rubbish. That's a shame. That was honestly, that was great fun. Like, actually, more so than when we did issue 53. It makes me want <gasps> to read some more challenges. Okay. That's fine. What did you think I was going to say? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, do you prefer it to issue 53? Well, I did. <gasps> yeah, no. it was much more exciting. Didn't have any questionable politics or, you know, there were no giant Ds lying around all over the place. Oh, no. That was. That was, um, I mean. Uh, Quite fun and quite disposable. I'll be with issue you know, 53 of Challenges we, we honestly, and we, we raced through that. That was, <laughs> I think that probably took us less time to record than the, the Robot Man story. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have to dig deep and see if we can find an excuse to do any more Challenges of the Unknown stories. We'll do our best, because they're so much fun. Once we hit the Bronze Age, there'll be a few more opportunities. There's that epic sort of 70s revival when everyone and his mother guest stars like Dead Man and Swamp Thing and Rip Hunter and all that, remember? Those are some covers there are absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. I think I probably posted one of them the last time we did the Challengers, and I think I probably posted one of them when we first mentioned all the Muck Monsters and we were talking about Swamp Thing when we did Showcase 55, but... Mm -hmm. Yes, that was our second story. Did you enjoy that? Anything yes. to add or anything to remark? No, as I said, I've got a fond nostalgia for it because it was one of my earliest uh, Silver Age issues, but it's my first Silver Age Challengers issue, so yeah. That was cracking. Huge I was surprised nostalgia. at how little dialogue some of them got. Yeah. It was the Ace show that week, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Ace and June, very amused by Ace's reaction to the, the lizard or the microbe shrinking, but no, that was, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That was great. So, cool. our next prior to the Doom Patrol story that we're going to talk about is... The next story that we're doing is from issue 115 of the House of Mystery. And this story anticipates Negative Man Yes, from the Doom Patrol. It positively does. Negative Man, who most of the time is wrapped up in bandages and is able to project himself or affairs of himself from his body and fly around and do things. 
<laughs> That's the extreme clip notes version. Pete's going to give you a little bit more detail. Yes, the original negative man was a pilot called Larry Trainer, who was accidentally exposed to radioactive field in the atmosphere whilst piloting a test plane. This made him radioactive, oh no, but also gave him a strange superpower, which was the ability to release a negatively charged energy being from his body. The being, which is also referred to as Negative Man, or later as Negative Spirit, can fly at high speed, cause solid objects to explode and pass through solid materials. It's like a dark silhouette of yes. a human being surrounded by a bright glow, and it's under Larry's control. But Larry's body is weak and defenceless while the being is separated from it and he can only risk sending it away from himself for 60 seconds at a time without risking death. Yep. So he's forced to wear specially treated bandages over his entire body to protect innocent bystanders from his radioactivity. Yep. yep. So yes, that's Negative Man. And with all that in mind about Negative Man, the story we're now going to do is from issue 115 of House of Mystery, published on the 1st of August 1961. It's the cover story, like the challenges one that we just did. PC, do you want to tell everyone about the cover to... House of Mystery 115. I would love to. It's got a lovely blue and green House of Mystery logo at the top. Ten cents. Ten cents. It is. Yep. Fantastic. A nice blue background again. Sky blue background. And we have a woman in a golden dress, golden tights, and a golden face covering. Yes. Very COVID friendly. Very COVID safe. <laughs> let's, let's be honest. Yes. Uh, yes. And she's basically projecting energy from her head. Yes. And it's blowing up the corner of a building, basically. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah. And there's a man running after her. Yeah, this chap, who we think is Bill Garrett, is a character from the story, he's running after her and he cries, Jane, you promised never to remove those bandages. Now you'll doom us all. And there's a caption that says, Prisoner of the Golden Mask. So there we have it. Right, straight into the story. There's an opening splash panel, and the opening splash panel has a caption box that says, Beneath the gleaming metallic cloth that enveloped her body was a power that could destroy all around her. Thus had fate doomed her to remain behind that metal shield forever, a prisoner, prisoner of, of the, the golden, golden mask. And in this opening splash panel, we can see the lady that we saw on the cover, head to toe, almost, her hands are clear, not wrapped up in the golden material, stretched out on a laboratory gurney. We can see a man in the background wearing a protective suit, operating some giant knobs and switches. There's a crackle of energy firing down towards her from the overhead piece of equipment. And she says as she lies on the table, The experiment is almost over. Will it cure me and set me free? Let's find out, listeners. So, caption for our first panel, top of page two, says, Outside a Mexican city in a newly discovered ruins, Bill Garrett and Jane Rainey join a scientific team of investigators. Yes, we see the scientific team of investigators wearing just what you'd expect them. Khaki clothes, wide-brimmed hats, all bearing flaming torches. And the first character who speaks is Professor Gomez, and he says, Stay close behind me, Dr. Wells, and you follow him closely, Senor Garrett. Bill Garrett says, Right, Professor Gomez, it'll be easy to get lost inside this Toltec pyramid. Caption for the next panel. Shortly afterward, however, as curiosity leads Jane down a side corridor. Jane's wandered off with her torch, and we see her looking up at a giant golden statue. A sort of Aztec-type figure, I suppose. Headdress, bearing a sword, and with a shield, we can see the detailing and the brickwork all around her. Definitely a touch of the Aztec temple thing going on. And Jane thinks... A great room with a gold statue of a Toltec leader. What a find. And then she cries, Bill, Professor Gomez, come quickly. However, caption for the next panel. But as the others race back to her. Yes, there's a giant broom sound effect. And Jane screams. Eee! And Bill Garrett observes a cave-in. Yet yeah, we can see the, the roof starting to collapse. He continues. 
It's blocking the archway. And Jane is trapped on the other side. See a couple of folk that are with him. We can see that actually that Professor Gomez is dressed in blue. There's a blue suit, very smart. Caption for the next panel. When the dust clears. We see Bill and the other standing next to the rubble. Bill with his torch and he says, We've got to dig our way in there. Fast. But then Jane says from beneath the rubble, No, wait. Don't try and reach me. I can't explain now, but something terrible is happening to me. Listen closely and follow my instructions. The caption of the final panel of page two says, A while later on a highway approaching the ruins. Yeah, we can see the pyramid in the distance as a van drives along the road towards it. The van driver's voice can be heard saying, I don't know what an archaeological team wants with a lead line truck, but we'll find out soon enough. There are the ruins. Arrive at the top of page three. Caption for the first panel. Meanwhile, at Jane's instructions, the others leave the ruins, and moments later... Yes, we see Bill and the two professors outside, moving away, and behind them there's a massive whoom sound effect. Bill explains, Great Jonah! It's Jane, glowing from head to toe, and a strange force from her body blow a hole right through the pyramid! Indeed, we see Jane standing, glowing with a green energy, hands up in the air, and she says, Stand away from me! I must enter the truck alone! Anyone who approaches me will be destroyed. We see Jane in the next panel climbing into the back of the truck that we saw arriving in the, on page two. Bill cries after her, Jane! Jane, what's happened to you? Professor Gomez cuts him off, saying, Let her be, Signor Garrett. We can do nothing for her until the doctors examine her. As for what caused this, I believe I know, though I do not think you will believe me. The next bit of captioning is narrated by Professor Gomez. Nice little headshot that we've become used to in these sort of things, and he's saying, Long ago... There lived a Toltec king, Zotl, who fought constantly with the witch doctors and sorcerers until one day, as he roamed the hills... Yes, and we see Toltec king Zotl standing on a rock, surrounded by a strange green glow that's very similar to what was emanating from Jane. Zotl is thinking... What strange thing is this that has come upon my body? It glows like the very moon. Gomez's narration continues in the next panel. Shocked, he wandered back toward the city, where... Yeah, we can see the, the king walk along and there's this warum sound effect as the green waves of radiation just burst from him, sending statues and indeed some of his, his friends flying. And he's thinking, By the great sun god, my body has the power to destroy all that is near it, and I cannot control that power. In the next panel, he's standing some distance away from some of his tribesmen, and he's saying, Do not approach me, my people. The rays of my body will kill you. There's a chap wearing a fancy headdress who replies, Oh, that is a curse which I, Teplon, placed upon you. You denied the power of my magic, and so I cursed the land in which you walked to prove my great skill. We flash back to the present day. Professor Gomez concludes, And the legend says King Zotl had a pyramid built atop the hill where the curse struck him and had himself sealed inside. Dr. Wales looks very concerned as Bill Garrett says, That must have been the room that Jane entered. We dare not explore the ruins, before we know more about that curse, I'm going to the hospital to see what the doctors have learned. Caption name for panel two. Frantic minutes later in the hospital. And we see Bill standing, talking to a doctor who sat at death. The doctor's older man, receding hairline, he's wearing glasses. We can see some kind of certification on the wall behind him. So he's obviously legit. Bill's in the process of saying, But if none of your medicines works, then Jane is doomed to remain behind lead walls forever, Dr. Marin. Dr. Marin replies, No, senor. We have found a way to free her, simply by... Wait, I hear her coming. And the door opens. Bill says, Gasp! Jane, what have they done to you? And we see that Jane is now wrapped from head to toe in this golden fabric. 
covered her face completely. She's wearing gloves, as Pete said. There's the golden skirt, gold blouse, gold tights, gold shoes. We didn't really describe Jane before, did we? She's a redhead, wearing blue jeans earlier on. So yeah, that's mm -hmm. that. Another beautiful statuesque lady. And as she stands in the doorway, Jane is saying, It's the only way, Bill. This experimental cloth is spun from metal threads that shield my energy from others. Now I can walk freely without endangering people until they find a cure for this condition. So there we go, kids. That's why we decided <laughs> to do this story. Yes. This is another one that I found, like, when I was scaring the interwebs in the middle of the night looking for something else and mm -hmm. saw the cover and was like, what? That remains. Hang on, wait a minute. So we've dug in. Here we go. So yep. Dr. Marin continues in the next panel. Remember one thing before you leave, Senorita. You must never remove any part of your covering in the presence of others. Yes. Jane says... I understand, Doctor. I would never endanger anyone else with my strange power. Very similar to Negative Man, isn't it? Yep. I mean, it's probably a coincidence. Of course, but... Whoever originated the Doom Patrol, it's entirely possible they may have read this story and... True. Thought, don't know. Arnold Drake, Bob Haney, they might have done. I mean, we don't know who wrote this story. We know it's drawn by Howard Chairman. Mm -hmm. So, if you know listeners, yeah, get in touch. Yeah, we have a slow dissolve then. Final panel of page four. From that moment on, Jane Rainey becomes a marked woman. Yeah, we see Jane and Bill walking arm in arm. Bill's got changed, wearing a normal green suit, nice brown hat. We see that Jane's completely wrapped in bandages. And in front of them on the pavement, there's a small child and her mum. And the child says, Mama, look at that strange lady. She's covered with gold. And her mum says, Do not stare at the poor creature, my child. She suffers enough. Well, that's nice and tolerant, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Well, we arrive then at the top of page five. And a frightful fame follows her wherever she goes. Yep, it's obvious that Bill is taking Jane to a nice fancy restaurant. We can see the, the waiter in the background. And there's a, a very foxy, short-haired lady in the foreground of the panel. Has her hand up to, to her face as if she's trying to speak quietly, not be overheard. And she's saying, she is the one who must live behind the cloth of metal. Poor unhappy girl. And Bill is saying to Jane in the background, I wish people would stop crying so hard for you and just, Hey, look who's coming. It's Dr. Wales. So Dr. Wales arrives and joins Bill and Jane at the table. And he says, Miss Rainey, I may have some good news for you. I think I'm on the track of a cure for your condition. Jane, this is a great shot. You can actually see the detailing in the, mm -hmm. the mask that she has to wear as the poor lassie. Jane replies, You? Dr. Wales? But how? Remember, I am a physicist by profession. Archaeology is only my hobby. Come to my laboratory in the morning. We'll begin a series of tests. But remember, I promise nothing. You don't have to. Hope is all I ask for. Nice aerial shot of them at the table there. Jane's having to drink through a straw. So, slow dissolve. Caption for the next panel. The following morning in the lab, as Dr. Wales dons protective clothing... Ah, well this is obviously back at the splash panel. Dr. Wales is wearing his big radioactive protective suit, and he's saying, Take off your gloves. When I wear close to you, I'll wear this lead suit. Every object in this room is specially built to withstand your energy. Now, the tests begin. I can't wait, Dr. Wales. We see her removing her glove. So there we go. It explains why she wasn't wearing them in the splash panel. And so, the final panel, page five, is essentially a splash panel at a slightly different angle. It's captioned and it says, Day after day, the complex analyses continue until... So, Jane's up on the, on the tabletop, things crackling away up above her. Dr. Wales is saying, That does it, Jane. The last test. I'll have the findings processed by tonight or tomorrow. Come by in the morning. Jane says, I'll be here before the birds are up, Doctor. Surely they'd have a conversation like that after she'd got down off the platform and put her gloves back on and they were leaving. <laughs> anyway, top of page six, the caption for the first panel. 
But that evening, as Jane wanders the streets alone... Oh, this is so poignant. We can see a couple of other courting couples. In fact, there's a few courting couples. There's a nice, very atmospheric... Gothic lamppost. Yeah, old-fashioned lamppost yes. in the background there. As Jane's walking along and she's seen all these kissing couples and she's thinking... I can't wait any longer. Maybe Dr. Wales has the reports complete tonight. I've got to find out. The caption for the next panel. At the laboratory, however... It's a very moody lit panel. These two panels, I think, together will go on the socials. Yeah, they're very, very nice. Mm -hmm. Jane in silhouette with all the laboratory equipment in the foreground, casting deep shadows. It's very interesting. You can see the lamp on the desk and she's holding a piece of paper and she's reading it and she's thinking. He's gone, but there are some notes on his desk. They're about the tests and... and Oh dear! Next panel, Jane is running away. She's throwing the pieces of paper. They're floating to the ground behind her and she's thinking, This is terrible. I must stop him. Can I reach him in time? Outside, Jane becomes a frenzied blur as she dashes through the city streets. Yeah, we see Jane running along the pavement, scattering the poor, hapless members of the public as she goes. One guy in a white shirt says, Watch out, the senorita. Aye, it's a lady of the golden cloth. What has gotten into her? Gosh, she's famous, just like Professor Morrow in that yes. um, Shining Night story we did recently. <laughs> as Jane rushes along the street, she's crying, Out of my way, all of you. And then the caption for the final panel of page six says... At that very moment, as Bill approaches the lab building in search of her... Yeah, Bill's arrived. He spots the commotion and he cries, Jane, what's gotten into you? Come back! No time to explain. Don't try to stop me, Bill. It's worth pointing out, it's a very craggy-faced man in the bottom panel of page six. It looks like Ronald Reagan to me. Yes, uh uh-huh. Even wearing the blue suit and red tie. Interesting. The classic Reagan outfit. Interesting. So we arrive then at the top of page seven. Bill's chasing after Jane. Bill's thinking, great Scott, she's removing the bandages from her face, but she knows she can't do that without endangering everything around her. I've got to stop her. And with a large crescent moon hanging in the sky behind, we can see that Jane is unraveling the bandages around her face, and there's a boom as the green radiation fires out, and as Peter said in the cover description, strikes the corner of a building. Jane continues to run. The caption for the next panel says, Through the outskirts of the city, the wild chase continues until... Yeah, Bill's chasing Jane. We see the temple in the background, the radiating waves of green energy still emerging from Jane. And Bill follows, thinking, the ruins. That's where she's headed. But why? Why? At the next panel, Jane has arrived back at the ruined temple. She's going back in through the hole in the wall. And she's saying, Leave me alone, Bill. There's no curse here. That witch doctor merely took advantage of a natural source. And I've got to destroy that source. No, you may destroy yourself too. The caption for the final panel of page 7. Heedless of the warning, Jane enters the terrible tomb, searches about frantically until... We're inside the temple. We can see the carved hideous statues and there's a rumble. And it looks like there's light coming up out of a hole in the ground. Jane turns to Bill and says... No, Bill, you can't save me. And, And now you've infected yourself. Look, your body's begun to glow too. I don't care. I'm getting you out of here before this whole place comes down. And sure enough, the, the waves of blue and green energy are radiating off Bill as well. We arrive at the first panel of page eight, and there's a massive boom sound effect. Bill and Jane have made it out of the temple, and they're running away, still surrounded by the green and blue haze. Bill says, we made it. And Jane, who we can now see clearly now that the, the mask is gone, she's a very beautiful lady. Jane says in reply, but what good is it? We're cursed with this power for the rest of our lives. And then a caption for the next panel says, It is then that another figure detaches itself from the shadows. Yes, we see a figure wearing a protective radiation suit. He's taken off the helmet. It's Dr. Wales and he says, Fools, you just destroyed a fortune. That power came from a great meteorite that fell to earth thousands of years ago. And I was about to mine that source. 
Jane's not having it. She says, Yes, Dr. Wills, you weren't trying to cure me. You only wanted to learn the source of... Wait! Bill, your body, it's losing its glow. Yeah, we can see that the green and blue haze is starting to dissolve. And the caption for the final panel of the story says... And in another second... Yep, Bill and Jane, standing very close to each other, smiling, and Bill says... We're cured! Cured! Destroying the meteorite shattered the mother load, and the effect on our bodies was destroyed with it! Jane replies... Free! Oh, Bill, I don't ever want to wear metal again, not even silver shoes for our wedding! And Dr. Wales stands looking very grumpy in the background as a closing caption tells us... The The end. end. So that's obviously what was going on then when she went back in to destroy the source. The rumble and the the light was obviously presumably coming off the original meteorite. I would guess that the entire temple pretty much collapsed, although we don't see it. It's just a bewimba. I think so. I mean, page eight here, it's another half page job. It's like, you know, there's an advert for Tootsie Roll Fudge underneath it. It's a shame Mm -hmm. if we didn't have the advert, we could have had another (laughs) couple of panels that might have clarified. That was great. Yeah, I love how Jane in high heels managed to outrun Bill all the way to the temple from the town. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, maybe maybe Bill's not that fit. Maybe he's possibly, got maybe he has, maybe he's got to wear a pacemaker now. Could be. Maybe yeah. Jane's radiation has a side effect, gives us super speed. <laughs> I don't know. I was hoping I might have finished with an astrally projected version of Jane emerging from her body and Can you flying imagine? into the temple. Can and blowing you it up. That would have worked incredibly well. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Another mm-hmm. little, almost a disposable story, but yes, definitely echoes of. Of the negative man there. Yeah, certainly worth covering, yes. Yes, I think so. I'm glad that Bill and Jane got married. Maybe when we write our own DC comic, we can bring them back and show they've had a a long and successful marriage and lots of kids and they've got up to lots more adventures. (laughs) I'm disappointed that Professor Gomez wasn't there for the conclusion. It would have been quite good if he'd been there to Mm -hmm. sort of go... Hall and pull up you know, Dr. Wales for being a baddie. Yeah. I like the idea of Dr. Wales. We think he's on Jane's side and he's mm-hmm. trying to help her, but no, he's he's corrupt. Maybe it was him who funded the expedition to the temple in the first place. Yeah. Because he maybe he knew about the meteorite and he was after it. Very, very interesting. So many questions. I know. So only the power of the meteorite could destroy the meteorite. That's yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Light poles repel or something indeed. or nothing. Very That's interesting. Fun. Yep, lots of fun. Lots of fun indeed. And this is the point where we should mention a story from issue 84 of House of Mystery, a story called The Negative Man, but it doesn't involve any tragic figures wearing bandages. No, it's just some scientists with an experiment that goes wrong that creates a havoc-bringing energy being, which they christened The Negative Man. That's, I think, from December 1958, House of Mystery 84. Nothing to do with Larry. So, we're nearly there, listeners. The next story that we'll be covering in our precedence to the Doom Patrol is... And the final story in this Road to the Doom Patrol episode is from G.I. Combat issue 35. Yep, published on the 17th of January 1956. And this is G.I. Combat before it was published by DC. This Mm -hmm. is when it was still being published by quality. So this is some real comic book archaeology. And you might be wondering, why are they doing a story from G.I. Combat? If they're talking about the superhero team of freaks and misfits, well, wait and see. Pete Sage, do you want to tell everyone about the gorgeous cover? I'm delighted. G.I. Combat 35. It's quite a stunning cover. Again, a theme for all these ones. There's a nice blue sky in the <laughs> yes. background. There's the GI Combat logo at the top. And yellow. It just, I love it. just pops with the, yep. the blacks. We've got a great Amazing. battlefield scene. We have some soldiers kneeling at the background, firing their Tommy guns. We have other soldiers running on a beach, it looks like, at the background. There's a tank coming in. There's explosions, explosions everywhere. Explosions over the place. There's a soldier standing, looking very heroic. With a hand back as if he's like summoning everyone forward with his gun raised. I love the way he's lit. It's almost yeah. like you know, the flames and explosions mm-hmm. in front of him. It's cracking, especially as you say, against the blue background. It's brilliant. Yes. Around this, we've got 
the titles of the stories that are inside. And they say, Airlift to Eternity, Bomb Squad, Red Terror Tactics, and finally, Doom Patrol. Yes, Doom Patrol. There is a story in here called Doom Patrol. Yep. Very, very exciting. I know. Amazing. For 1956. 1956. So that's a good seven years at least before the mm-hmm. the first appearance of the, the actual Doom Patrol in the pages of My Greatest Adventure. Very exciting. Mm. So, the story we're doing is called Doom Patrol. It's only six pages. It's worth doing. It's quite funny. We have an opening, not quite splash panel, but it takes up most of the opening page. It's the Sarge and his lads crawling along through the grass. There's a massive red story caption at the top that says, Doom Patrol. And Sarge is saying, let's go men, we'll rush them. And the caption box says, In army alphabet code, it was company D for dog. But to the men it looked more like company D for doom when they heard about their next mission. To spring a red trap by walking straight into the guns of a hidden battery and trying to get back alive. And so the story properly begins. The first panel is a caption that says, An army reconnaissance plane taking night photographs by the light of million candle power flares filmed the red movement without seeing it. See the troops moving along, the sky lit up above them. Very effective. Slow dissolve, the caption for the next panel. The films were developed at Intelligence for detailed study. And this panel shows the pilot of the aforementioned reconnaissance plane and his officer. They're looking at the blow-ups of the photograph that he took. The pilot's saying, I couldn't see a thing from my altitude, but the camera would spot anything important. The officer says, It looks like it did. I want an enlargement of this central area on the double. Excellent. As he points at one of the photos. Tremendous. So in panel three of this opening sequence, the senior officer is looking at a photographic blow-up with one of his colleagues. The senior officer is saying, I was right. That's a red division with heavy gear moving up the slope of Cupcake Knob. His mate replies, Those darts above are bunker and tunnel mouths. I'll get an FO up to position right away. Okay, don't know what that means. Maybe maybe we should have got Max and Rich to... We should have, yes, asked the weird warriors to assist. Um, No little killjoy is here. Yes, hopefully. Look forward to that. Tell us we were doing wrong. So at the top of page two, the caption of the first panel. An artillery FO, forward observer, moved into position and radioed back the data the gun layers needed. Ah, well that's it then, straight away. A forward observer. You live and you learn. But while we're here, yes, you should also be listening to our pals' podcast, the Weird Warriors podcast, if you're enjoying DC Comics that were published back in the day. So anyway, this FO, Forward Observer, is speaking into his radio and he's saying, Vector in and shackle seven, obo, cubo, nine repeats, nayon, unshackle, nosy, over and out. And in panel two, we see some heavy armament being fired, some heavy guns being fired, and it looks like there's a guy with a radio telephone receiver who's receiving the instructions where to fire them. And he's saying, Deflection right to zero zero, roger. And then they're firing. Presumably that makes sense. Maybe that's him forwarding on the instructions. From I the believe guy. so, yes. Dunno, makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Capture of panel three. Through the day, the UN artillery threw everything but the rolling kitchens at Cupcake Knob. Yeah, we see Cupcake Knob being devastated by lots of explosions. There's a caption for the next panel. Even a mobile rocket launcher crossing Muzan Ridge paused to throw a little flat trajectory hell into the maelstrom. Yep, we see rockets being fired. I have to say, I don't know anything about military equipment, but that looks very carefully rendered, it must be said. Yes, it's, it's a nice uh, armoured vehicle. It's one of the ones, I don't know what it's like, it's almost like a jeep at the front, yeah, but a bit of tank back. treads at the yeah, back. I've no idea what it's called. <laughs> so. Yeah, it looks, uh, but it's yeah. very well drawn. So anyway, mm. the caption for the next panel. At nightfall, when the savage bombardment let up. And we are back with the forward observer. And he's saying into his radio, 
They're bugging out. There must be a hundred of them taking off toward the east. They've had enough pounding. They've had enough pounding. Good grief. So, there's another caption beside the next panel, which we think is sort of narrated as if we, the listener, are on the side of the, the forces that are doing the bombarding, because it, it says, We got in a few mortar bursts to speed the parting guests, and then the smoking slopes of Cupcake were left to the nights. Yeah, and we see some soldiers being assailed by the, the mortars. Quite the thing. Again, this is really, really nice artwork. It's very carefully rendered, very effective. So, a slow dissolve, and we are back with the senior officer who we met earlier, who's been joined by a mustachioed colleague. And the mustachioed colleague is saying, There you are. The red's going in and the red's scooting out. What do you think, Sam? And the cigarette-smoking, photograph-looking-at guy who we met on earlier page says, If you really want to know, I'll tell you. I think it smells. Precisely. We arrive at the top of page three. Sam continues, Some 300 reds go in and 100 come out. You can't tell me our artillery killed 200 in the kind of bunkers they build. If we've got 20, I'll be surprised. The way they burrow in. It's a trap. We're supposed to think Cupcake is abandoned and send a force right into their guns. A nice external shot of the building they're in as a full moon looms in the background. Take a drink. <laughs> yep. So, what can we do? We've got to smoke them out. There's only one thing we can do. Send a force right into their guns. Okay, it's slow dissolve. We're getting into the story now. Caption for panel 3 of page 3 says, Company D drew the dangerous assignment, and Sergeant McGee assembled his men for briefing. Mother McGee, they called him. Yeah, Company D for Doom Patrol. See the soldiers all lined up, and the sergeant is instructing them. He's saying, And I want to see nylon vests and flag diapers and every man jack of you. Then the young soldier, who's not long with the team, he replies and pipes up. Do we pack our own picnic lunches, Sarge? You kid, you're a new replacement. I want you where I can watch you every step of the way. What's your name? Gordon, sir. PFC Ed Gordon. Next panel, they all start moving off, and Gordon says, Boy, he's tough, isn't he? And another soldier smoking a cigarette replies, Are you kidding? Get out of his sight just once in his ramp and you'll see how tough he can really get. Another soldier continues in the next panel. He's tough because he's soft, kid. We call him Mother McGee because he worries about every guy in the outfit personally. Right now he's crying inside over this suicide detail and that makes him tougher on the outside. Gordon says in the next panel. Gee, I feel, feel like my insides are full of butterflies. I guess I'm scared. I got news for you, kid. We're all scared. So we arrive at the top of page four. Caption for the first panel there says, The first grey light of dawn was showing when the mission began. We can see the soldiers. They're all looking up at Cupcake Knob and one of the soldiers is saying, Where's the rest of the outfit, Sarge? I thought we were all going. He'll be there, Buster. You worry about getting yourself there and back. A half hour later. Okay, we see that they've got a little closer to Cupcake Knob. And the sergeant is saying, There's our goal. Spread out to ten yard intervals and move up. Bazooka men on the right. RL team on the left. Barmen on the flanks. Sergeant turns to a younger soldier on the next panel and says, When the fireworks start, hit the dirt and watch me for signals, kid, and stay scared. You'll live longer. Then I ought to live to be 300, Sarge. A caption before the next panel says, Slowly they moved up the open slope, each man taut with sharp tension, knowing they were covered by unseen red guns. So, young soldier and a Sarge, taking the lead in the next panel, young soldier says, but, but why don't they shoot? They don't want to spring their trap until they're sure we're well in it. I don't get it. So we walk until they shoot us, and then what? What does it prove? Sarge turns to this guy and says, you mean the general didn't discuss this with you first, Baker? I'll reprimand him for that oversight the minute we get back. 
Suddenly... Yep. You can see there's four of the soldiers now, and one of them cries, Sarge, look out, over there! And we can see from behind some of the, the opposition in this scafuffle, and they've got a gun pointed right at them. It looks like a machine gun of some description. Indeed, because one of the soldiers says in the next panel, What the? A machine gun nest! And another one says, I saw the sun glint off the barrel when he swung it. Oh my goodness, they're going to be pinned down. Top of page five, it's not too clear. It looks as though the, the guy that was operating the machine gun nest is running out. We see him running off in the distance and the kid says, Get him! One of the other soldiers says, Look at that red dodge. And in the next panel, we see the kid pulling his rifle and he says, I'll get the dirty... Come back, you blasted idiot! cries the sergeant as the kid runs off and then the kid fires at the guy they were chasing. Missed him again! We see a scream from the bad guy as he falls down. And then in the next panel, there's a massive explosion. We're back with the three other soldiers, and Baker says, Jumping Jonas, the kid chased the red right into his own minefield. Another 50 yards and we'd have been in it. Then the sergeant says, Hit the dirt! There's all sorts of merry hell playing off the next panel. Explosions going off behind him as the sergeant turns and cries, Gonzalez! Peavy! Get that going with smoke shells! And these guys are obviously bazooka operators. And the first one says, Take it away! And his mate cries, Duck! As the bazooka fires off, and that's the final panel of page five. Again, all sorts of explosions and merry hell going on around them. So we arrive at the top of page six now. There's a full moon in the background. A soldier standing in front of us, a couple of other soldiers, and one of them says, It's the other half of our outfit. They must have slipped around on the flank while we kept the Reds busy. Yeah, so the main guys that we've just been with, presumably, have gone a little bit further up, and whilst they were doing that, the rest of their crew has obviously come up around the other way while they distract them. I think that makes sense. Yes. So our guys were the Doom Patrol because they went and took the risk and called through, and whilst yes. they were doing that and distracting and taking out the machine gun nest, the rest of the, the unit came round the hill and caught up with them. I concur. I think that's right. So in the next panel, we see a corporal looking delighted as in the background, one of his mates is firing off a flamethrower. Gosh. Oh my God, what is hell? And then the next panel, it's a shot of a soldier firing a rifle into the, the holes in the tunnels that we heard about in Cupcake Knob. And then panel four of page six, we're back with the bazooka guys as one of them fires it and says, Going somewhere? Yep, and then in panel five, with a full moon in the background, one of the bad guys, he emerges from the tunnels, and the bazooka's pointed right at him. The guy with the bazooka says to the guy who's emerging from the cave, Yeah, but not where you figured I'm going. Right, so they think that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Panel six, page six. Our heroes, such as they are, as we've come to know them, look visibly relaxed. Um, there's all sorts of smoke going on in the background. They've obviously taken out all the baddies, or taken out the reds, whoever they are. The sergeant is saying, Okay, okay, it's all over. We'll dig in here until they send a regular occupation force. And Gordon replies, Oh, I was just getting warmed up. And then the final panel of the story, the Sarge grabs Gordon by the scruff of his jacket as the others look on and laugh, and the Sarge says, Yeah, I'll warm you up, you f What's the idea of taking chances when I told you to stay by me down there, huh? And one of the soldiers in the background laughs at the Sarge, losing his temper, and says, Yeah, we're back to normal. It's kind of a badge of honour to get chewed out by the Sarge, and the kid surely earned it. He's a veteran now. And we don't have a caption, but that's... The end. end. Gosh, was that worth the effort? Listeners, you let us know. <laughs> it's a bit messy, but we had to do it because it's called the Doom Patrol. Why, of course. Why could we well, not we had do to it? do it. I mean, yeah. I, I think, I think to be honest, listeners, Peter probably cursed me when I sent him this. <laughs> uh, when I was like, look what I found. Probably a night when I couldn't sleep and I was browsing eBay for cheap GI Combat Dollar comics. No doubt. You know, inspired the cover. Yeah, very interesting. Doom Patrol, i.e. a patrol of soldiers sent to certain Doom, yes. but they turned it around and got on top of the machine gun nest and then managed to get in at the tunnel with a bazooka and take out the bad guys. With a bit of a wah-wah-wah yes. ending. So that was fine. Doom Patrol. Doom Very Patrol. interesting. Yes. There we go. And if that doesn't precede a regular... <laughs> 
fix your superhero team called Doom Patrol. I don't know what does. It did, yes. You can't get much more on the nose than that, can you, listeners? No. That is the final story we're doing for this episode. But there's one other thing that we do want to mention. Yes. And that is the similarities between the Doom Patrol and a certain Marvel superhero team. Yes, a certain Marvel superhero team who appeared at the same time and were characters that wore very similar uniforms. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Doom Patrol's uniforms, not initially, but eventually were kind of red and white. These guys were kind of dark blue and yellow. And yes. Both groups seen as sort of misfits and, mm-hmm. and freak shows almost. And both groups had a leader who was very clever and operated out of a wheelchair. Yes. Who could we be talking about? Of course, it's those uncanny X-Men, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, the Doom Patrol debuted in Magnus' Adventure issue 80. That came out on April the 18th, 1963. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that's before or after the X-Men? I've read about this before. I'm sure I've seen discussion of this in the past, mm-hmm. read somewhere. It's not like the same week or something or within a fortnight. Oh, it's, or... No, it's slightly more than that. Right. X-Men issue 1 came out on the 2nd of July, 1963. Ah, so three months nearly. Yeah, So and it was a bi-monthly comic as well. Whereas Magritte's Adventure was monthly, so there was a couple of Doom Patrols ah. before X-Men actually hit the stands. Obviously, you know, as we know from reading about these times, comics took months and months and months to make, so both are probably yes. in development at roughly the same yes. time. Yes. So it's not a case of Marvel saw, oh, look at what DC are doing, let's try and copy that. It's, it's just one of these coincidences. There's no real, I mean, Robot Man's nothing like the Angel, for example. Mm-hmm. Beast is nothing like Negative Man, for example. Yeah. You could argue maybe a stretch of a similarity between Cyclops and Negative Man. Because yes, they have, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. They're both at risk of unleashing a devastating harmful yes. force unless they wear their protective equipment. There's that. But look at Iceman. There's no real obvious no. Iceman equivalent or anything like that in the Doom no. Patrol. It's interesting. I mean, I've got a ton of Silver Age Doom Patrols. That's one of the few things that escaped my purge. And a lot of them I've got, I kept mainly, mainly for sentimental reasons because mm. I got them from Peter Root. I remember actually... The night I saw Robbie Williams at the Exhibition Centre in Glasgow in February 1999, as well as buying that week's comics, which included the first issue of the Hourman ongoing, I also bought a few issues of Doom Patrol that day, kind of later ones. So I've got tons of Doom Patrol, but I've hardly read any of them. I should probably read them a few of them before, <laughs> we, um, before we, we convene and do, and do their final issue. Yes. Do you have a lot of Silver Age Doom Patrol stuff yourself? Do you have much? I've got quite a few issues. I've got my greatest adventure 80. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, God, you kept that quiet. Oh, well, there you go. I got, <laughs> I got it for the grand sum of one pound. I hate it when he does this. Do you know that? <laughs> a comic mart, which... Uh, was it damaged or was it no, misfiled? It was, or? it was about 1988, so I don't think anyone was interested in it then. Wow. Yeah, you know. I've got the archives as well. I've right. got the full run of the archives, so I've got all of them. We'll talk a bit more about what we know and our own experiences with the Doom Patrol when we're joined by our special guest to do issue 121. That's the plan for the next episode, kids. Issue 121 of the Doom Patrol, the final issue of the regular Silver Age run. As we said at the start, it touched on the legacy aspect because it's a story that features a new version of Robot Man. Mm-hmm. It was quite a you know a long story career, but we'll tell you next week why we're doing issue 121 in particular, not any of the others. Mm-hmm. Out of the stories we've covered today then, Peter, which one... Which one was your favourite? You're going to say the challengers. <laughs> Out of the ones you hadn't experienced before, which mm. one was your favourite? Genuinely, I really enjoyed the first three. I think the Doom Patrol one was thought, I felt was a bit messy. It was fun, it was interesting, but it was a bit messy. We kind of struggled a little bit with the Doom Patrol one because mm. the characters aren't very well distinguished apart from the sergeant and the young boy. Yeah, you know, that, it's, that's it's, why I like superhero comics because yeah. you can tell who everyone is instantly from yeah, their costumes. That's, that's the great thing about like Easy Company and the Sergeant Rock stories of the losers, you yeah. know, because everyone is so recognisable. Very distinct, yeah. I think my favourite was probably the the House of Mystery one. I like the good, I like yeah. the scope and the scale of it. You know, mm-hmm. really could have been expanded. The Robot Man one was funny as well, but it was maybe a little bit too abrupt to really savour. But no, that was good. It's stretching the limits a little bit because you know we're not a we're not a Tomb Patrol podcast, and our whole aspect of the legacy that we really talk about is Golden Age. But we're hinging this all on the fact that 
Robot Man is a Golden Age character, and he met another Robot Man. And ultimately, there's a Silver Age Robot Man. And ultimately, there were some other stories that we think might mm. have maybe suggested or at least anticipated some aspects of the Doom Patrol. So I hope you forgive us this little slight sideways step. There we are. And if you don't forgive us, you can email us and tell us all about why yes. you don't forgive us. <laughs> Our email address is theearthpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you follow us on social media because we'll find some interesting bonus material to put up for you this week. On Facebook and Instagram, we're at the Earth 2 Podcast, and on Twitter, we're at podcast underscore Earth 2, and it's the number two for all of our social media. Yep, you can get us on YouTube as well now, and as I've said in the past, if you can go on to wherever it is you receive your podcast and rate and reviews, that'd be tremendous. And yeah, check out the socials this week. We'll be posting the covers from all of the stories that we've covered today. We'll post a few select panels as well. I might even see if people take his copy of the first appearance of the Doom Patrol out of the safe and take a picture of it in anticipation of the Doom Patrol proper being in next week. There's a ton of Doom Patrol content prepped for next week. Good, good. We look forward to joining us next week for some more Doom Patrol action. I've been David. And I've been Peter. And you've been listening to The Earth 2 Podcast. Transmatter cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. I nearly said for some more DP action, but that would be terrible. <laughs>